0: Good morning, Trinity Grace. Hope you're all doing well on this chilly morning here at uh, Trinity Grace Church. Have you ever stopped to consider what is the value of your name? That's how Solomon opens our passage this morning, and he says that a value of a good name is better than precious ointment. I wonder what is the value of your name? I think you can sort of think of some people at work who, when you hear that they're going to be on the project that you're working on, you are satisfied or excited because you hear their name and you know that it's a name associated with a good work ethic, with someone who's smart and knows what they're doing, isn't going to slack off. And I'm sure there's people at your work who, when you think of their name, you cross your fingers and hope that they don't get assigned to work on your project. Because you know that you will have to pick up the slack for that kind of person. A name has this quality of being able uh, of associating all kinds of things with it. When we hear a name, we immediately have a reaction to the person who bore that name. Wayne Gretzky, upstanding hockey. Um, Steve Jobs, most of you are carrying his devices in your pocket this morning unless you're not an Apple fan. Adolf Hitler. That's a name that is associated with much hatred around the world. A name that has lived on in infamy. It's not worth much. Abraham Lincoln. When you think of that name, you think of the emancipation of slavery in the United States. Moses. As a Hebrew, you revere that name. You look to him as the one who was the receiver of God's law for his people. Leonardo da Vinci, great artist, amazing thinker of the Renaissance age. Miriam Martin, some of you who from Leaside Bible Chapel remember that name. An old lady, well, she was old when I got here, and she was just a dear old soul. Every single birthday, she had a card for you. And Christmas, and it was personally... Actually, it was typed out on a typewriter. When you say the name of Miriam Martin, I'm looking out on this crowd, and I see everyone who knew her smiling, because her name was lifted up at Leaside Bible Chapel. People knew her. Nothing can quite prepare us, however, for the kind of gut punch that Solomon starts off this passage with. Let's read verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. And the day of death better than the day of birth. What on earth is he doing? Why would Solomon throw in that somber note after he starts talking about a good name and all the things that he brings? Well, there's an old Hebrew proverb, which I suppose this is an old Hebrew proverb as well, but there's another old Hebrew proverb. It says this. Do not believe in yourself until the day of your death kind of slaps us in the face because we've been told all our lives to believe in ourselves all, all the days of our lives. But I think you get what the old, old Hebrew proverb is trying to say. You don't really know the worth of a name until the person has ended, until the person's life is over. You never know what's going to happen up until the end. I'm sure each one of us in this room can think of people who lived their whole lives away from Christ and then at the end of their life came to know him. And we celebrate, and rejoice, and we're happy that their name has been added to the list of those who will be with him forever. And I'm sure we all know people who seem to have lived great lives and then all of a sudden they decide at age 70 to throw it all away and turn away from the faith. And those are the names we, we wish our kids would not bear. We're, we, we pray and hope that we would be the ones who are faithful to the end and not this. Until our lives are over, our name is not cemented. Now, the, those that I read there, uh, most of those, their lives are over, and their names have been cemented in history, and so we know what to think. <clears throat> when I was growing up, I had an idol. His name was Patrick Roy. I apologize to all the French in the room, because I don't have a good French accent. He was the goalie for the Montreal Canadiens. He wore number 33, and he was fantastic. He was, one of the be- he was probably the best goalie in the league at the time. When I was 11 or 12... I saved up my pennies, and it took about uh, 10,000 of them. I think it was about 100 bucks, and I bought Patrick Rouat's jersey because I was a fan of... I had his posters up over my bed, two of them, one here and one here. I loved Patrick Rouat. He was my idol. I tried to play goalie like him unsuccessfully, um, but nonetheless, he was, I was this huge fan of his. And it wasn't until later on in life... I started to read about Patrick Roy and found out that he was a pretty nasty man. I won't go into the things he's done in his life, but he was not good idol material. I suppose no man should be your idol, but you know what I mean. I found out that his name, while associated with great hockey play, was also associated with things that I would never, ever want to revere in my life or ever want to have happen in my life, and I was disappointed. As my, as my life went on, the name changed. And so we can see, as we go through our lives, our, the worth of our name can grow or recede. And Solomon very rightly says, better is the day of death than the day of birth when considering the value of your name. Make sure that you get to the end. <clears throat> I think in some ways we can sort of understand this. When, when you think about uh, a builder, someone who's going to build a building... Um, as Solomon is saying, look to the end. We we would be surprised if someone decided to build a building and didn't have an idea of what they were going to build. We would be shocked. We would say, well, you're sort of foolish to not consider the end of this building. If they just got a bunch of two-by-fours and started hammering them or screwing them together, not knowing what they were building, we would think that they were foolish. So Solomon says, consider the end. The day of death has more to teach than the day of birth. And I think these first four verses in the chapter, he continues on in this. He says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. As Solomon says, Consider the value of your name. Consider what your name will be worth when you pass this mortal realm. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. In verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. And in verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. As we go through our lives, it is good to realize that these places are better for learning and uh, producing character in us than to spend time laughing and and rejoicing. Uh, The Apostle Paul has this great passage in Romans chapter 3 where he talks about this. I don't know if you have a Bible anymore or you bring one to church, but if you do, you can turn to that. Romans chapter 3. I don't hear any pages rustling. That's because everyone's whipping away on their phone. Verses 3 to 5. No, nope, that's not it. Verse, Romans 5, sorry. Verses 3 to 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, know that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So we see Paul the Apostle knew this too, that those things in our lives that bring sorrow and sadness are oftentimes the things that bring the most uh, character development and learning in our lives. Uh, this weekend was American Thanksgiving. And my two sisters, who live in New Jersey, were up for the weekend. It was a great time. Uh, We got to hang out with them. And on yesterday, they were over at my house, and my wife uh, was uh, making a soup for lunch. And my sisters were there, and you're hanging out, and we were all hanging out in the kitchen. And I went over to the counter and picked up the cookbook, at which point, all three of the women in the house started laughing, which I thought was a little depressing that they would <laughs> laugh at me. But nonetheless, I was interested to read something in the cookbook about onions. Um, the, it's a cookbook that has all these fun facts on the page. Apparently, the reason that you cry when you are um, cutting onions is that you're cutting into the cells and they release something called allyl sulfate. And that gets into the air, gets into your eyes, and makes you cry. But what the, book, the cookbook pointed out was this allyl sulfate, whatever that is, I don't know what it is, is actually what is the property that causes onions to be healthy for you. I thought that was a, a, a nice, maybe somewhat simplistic way of saying what Solomon is saying this morning, that the things that make us cry so often are the things that are healthy for us in our lives. They, better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of mirth and laughter. And the next few verses, Solomon, <clears throat> as he goes, he gives us some wisdom for living as we look to the end of our lives. Solomon gives us things that we can, um, we can work on in our lives. Do not despise the rebuke of the wise. Don't look down on someone when they correct you in your lives because those are the places where you need work. He says in verse 8, Put more stock in the end of things than their beginning because patience is better than pride. I think that's a a really good one for us to take a hold of in this in this time where the beginning of things are so celebrated. As as I've gotten older, more and more I've started to appreciate those who can see a thing through to the end. Because that shows great patience and faithfulness in the person. The ability to carry a thing through until it's finished. And Solomon says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. It's easy to start a thing. You might start it out of pride or foolishness, but to carry it through to its end is hard and good. He says, do not spend time on nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't think that looking back, your childhood was better than... Your child's childhood, that things were better back then, that the temptations were less. Solomon says it's not a wise thing to do. And of course, wisdom is better than money, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And Solomon continues on in verses 13 and 14, sort of a summary. Of this consideration of the end, he says the last thing you ought to do is consider the work of God. As you go through your life, you're looking to the end to see the kind of name you will have. Consider the work of God, and he has, um, in my mind, a somewhat uh, negative. It's well he phrases this in somewhat of a negative negative way. Hear this: consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. I guess it's sort of not that negative, but he's saying to the, to the readers of his uh, book, consider that when God brings something into your life, there's nothing you can do about it. He goes on, in the day of prosperity be joyful, in the day of adversity consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And Solomon's view of the end is that eventually you're not going to know what God's doing. I'm sorry. How does that make you feel? When I read those verses, and I've spent a long time thinking about this chapter, because when I read through Ecclesiastes, I, I come away somewhat depressed. I don't, I don't know about the rest of you as you read through this book. But there seems to just be this uh, dark Hail that's cast over the whole book. And as I was thinking about that, <clears throat> I realized that Solomon, living in the Old Testament times, couldn't see what we can see now. We live in a time where more has been revealed of God's will than Solomon could have ever imagined. You see, Solomon, in his time, he was looking at the end. And I had to check this with Albert because I didn't want to say something wrong. But generally speaking, the Hebrew view of the uh, afterlife in the Old Testament was rather undeveloped. They had an idea of this place called Sheol, where your um, soul went, and it was basically another word for the grave. And Solomon says that many times. You know, the end of man is all, all men go to the same place. They go to the grave, and what can you know after that? And so Solomon, in considering from his worldview what the end is, gives us wisdom that, as we consider it, is wise when you're thinking about just the end of your life. And yet, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that there's more beyond the end, don't we? In fact, there's a whole lot more beyond the end. And what I'd like to suggest this morning, that as we consider Solomon's wisdom, we look at it in the light of past the end. And that way, uh, redeem his wisdom. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter in our small group. And we uh, haven't got very far yet, but we've been having a great time discussing the, the amazing things that First Peter, or not First Peter, Peter wrote down. And at the beginning of his book, he says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As we consider our end, we need to remember that our end does not end here on earth, in the grave. Our end is in, hopefully, I hope for everyone in this room, in the presence of the Lord Almighty. As we consider, Now, how does that help? Um, we've, we've talked about how Solomon's wisdom, looking at the end of his life, helped him make sense of the way he was going and make good decisions about the way he would live. How does looking past the end help us make good decisions? Well, I want to just give you one quick thought this morning. And um, it, it centers around this idea of our hope or our inheritance. Think for a moment what your inheritance is. Have you ever asked that question when you read it in the Bible? What is your inheritance in heaven, kept for you, imperishable and undefiled? Well, I'm sure your brains are thinking of all kinds of great things, and I thought this morning I would just uh, tell you seven things. If you want to go in your Bibles, turn to Revelation and chapter 2. Let's, let's go to the only part of the Bible that Jesus himself actually wrote. I mean, I know he inspired the whole thing, but he actually wrote this part. Letters that he wrote to the churches. We're not going to spend a lot of time about what he told the churches, but we will look briefly at what he promised the churches. This is one way to look at the inheritance, the hope that we have for the future. So at the end of each section, after Jesus has given his correction... And his encouragement, he gives the, the, uh, the churches a promise to the church of Ephesus. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How does that sound? Pretty good to me. You get to eat of the tree that Adam and Eve were barred from because they would eat and live forever. What an incredible thing that will be. Can you you just picture taking a piece of fruit off that tree? I don't know what it looked like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to taste amazing as you would be able to bite into the tree of life itself. At the end of the church to Smyrna, he says this, "Um, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You will be free from punishment. You will be in the presence of God Almighty, not in punishment, in comfort instead. That's going to be amazing, I think. How about the end of the church of Pergamum? To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How about that? When when we get to heaven... We get into God's presence. He has a stone prepared for you. I don't know if there will be a physical stone or not. He gives it to you. And it's got a new name. And that name is going to be known by two people in the universe. You and the Lord Almighty. You ever imagine that you would have a secret with God that no one else knows ever? You're going to have a new name given to you personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of Thyratyra. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, even as I have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. If you read through the book of Revelation, you know the morning star is Jesus himself. Imagine that. You're given the presence of Jesus Christ for eternity. That's what you're given as you get to the end. Part of your inheritance. To The church of Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Your name, that name that Solomon was so concerned that you have a good one, your name will be written in the book of life and never be blotted out. And not only that, I, Jesus Christ, I'm not Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, will confess your name before the Father And his angels, your name, Barb. He's going to say your name before his father and all the angels in heaven. I mean, when you consider what a name is worth, consider where it's spoken. It's going to be spoken in the most incredible, highest place in the universe. Your name is going to be spoken by the highest of high in the church of Philadelphia, he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. You have, will have the privilege of becoming one of the foundation pieces of the place where God is worshipped. Where God is worshipped is where his presence is, you will be in God's presence forever and ever and ever. It's part of your inheritance. As so you look past the end of your life. And to the church of Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That kind of blows the rest of them away. When you get to the end and you're in the presence of the Lord, he will grant you to sit with him on his throne. As I consider these things, I think they, they cover the broadest spectrum of life. You see, when we're thinking about what might make us tarnish our name, it's generally to achieve some of these things. We, we decide that we're going we're gonna, to uh, throw away some of our names, so that we can get health or comfort or maybe so that we can get into the inner circle of some special place or so that we can have more power in our lives or recognition or fame or wealth. But consider the promises that have been given to you in the Word of God. All those things, anything that you might throw away your good name for in this life is given to you 10,000-fold by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you remain faithful to his name. And if that doesn't help you live, I don't know what will. You don't need to scurry around going after all these other things in this life. They will be yours in abundance of abundance in the next. And so continue on. Not only that, But Solomon's words at the end of this section are redeemed. He says, I think God makes things crooked so that you won't know what happens, so that you don't know how he works. And we can look at that and smile and say, you know what? We don't actually know the reasons God does all those things. The Apostle Paul himself said we see through a glass darkly now. We don't maybe know why this bad thing or this good thing happened to us but we know for a fact that God's plans are glorious. We know that he has incredible plans for those who follow him, and we can rejoice in this. Well, as Solomon goes on, he now turns to a sort of how you live out your day-to-day life. It took me a long time as I was thinking about these verses Um, to figure out what he was trying to say. In verse 15, he says this, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And his conclusion from that is, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourselves? And then he says, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? As I considered what he was trying to say this, I think what he's trying to say, and he goes on, it's good that you should take hold of this and that you should not withhold your hand for the one who fears God will avoid both of these things, being overly righteous and being overly wicked. He says walk down the middle where overly righteous is like a cliff on this side and overly wicked is a cliff on this side and you're walking on the ridge in between. As I consider these things, I think what he's trying to get at is legalism Versus a certain sort of license in your life. Um, Legalism being the abundance of rule-keeping, apart from, say, relationship with God. And as we can see, this does destroy. You see, when when you live your life all bound up in the rules, then you end up destroying the person that you are. There's a a story in the New Testament that perfectly illustrates this, when Jesus was in the synagogue on a Sabbath day where there was supposed to be no work, and in the synagogue there was a man there who had a hand that was crippled for many, many years. And the Pharisees, who basically are synonymous with legalism in our minds anyway, the Pharisees were there, watching Jesus closely to see what he would do. Because in their minds, to heal a man on the Sabbath would be to do work, which would break the rules, and therefore would be bad. And Jesus, it's uh, one of the few times he is filled with anger in the New Testament as he, or in his lifetime, as he looks around at these Pharisees. He's also filled with great despair. Not despair. Sadness, it says in the New Testament. Anger and sadness at these men because he realizes that their lives have been destroyed by legalism. That the amount of rules that they've brought into their lives have so crippled them that they can't even see the goodness in making a man whose hand did not work, work again just because it's the Saturday and you're not supposed to do work. Legalism will destroy your life. It doesn't allow freedom of choice and living. And on the flip side, don't be overly wicked. One could go from legalism and say, well, then we should just live how we want to live. But Solomon warns against that too. Because if you just do whatever you want, as the New Testament says, sin will bring death. I think we've all experienced this in our lives. When we go down the path of doing what we know we ought not to do, certain things begin to die. Relationships in our lives die as we're going down a path. And the ultimate end of sin, of course, is death. As John wrote in chapter 8 of his uh, 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 gospel, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And so the irony being that as we think we are being free As we think we have more license to do things, we actually end up being a slave to sin. And Solomon's advice to us, walk in the fear of God between the two extremes. It's good advice. But again, it's not complete. Because we have more, don't we? In the New Testament, we know more than Solomon knew. As Solomon considers... um, this, this advice that he's given, walk down the path of both, just as an aside. Uh, I think the rest of the cha- most of the rest of the chapter is him saying, I've never seen someone actually accomplish this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There is not righteous. He says, you're not righteous. Verse 21 and 22, don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, because you know what? You know, you've done the same thing. I think we could probably apply that to many, many areas in our lives as we judge others for the things that they do and then realize finally that actually I do those same things. Not even Solomon is righteous as he goes to the end there. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. I think Solomon is sort of self-confessing, as we know from reading his life. um, At the end of... uh, The book that tells the tale, they make the comment that the women that he brought into his life, all the wives that he married from the foreign nations who worship idols, led Solomon's heart astray. I think Solomon is saying, even in my own wisdom, I have not managed to walk this walk down the middle path. His final word, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. But the thing the New Testament brings to bear on this passage that we didn't have before when Solomon was alive is found in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Because we can say now, yes, there is. His name is Jesus. He is the only one who has ever lived a righteous life on this earth. And he is the one who we can put our trust and faith in. The New Testament says this. Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, he says, this is what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. I like this because it's, it's, it's the New Testament version of Solomon's wisdom. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit from God for God. See Solomon said, don't be too overly righteous, don't be too legalistic. And Paul in the New Testament says to us, you're no longer under the law. There was a man who lived a perfect life. His name was Jesus. And when you pay it your faith and trust in him, you realize that he has fulfilled the law, that you're no longer beholden to it. Paul, writing to the Colossians, said, the record of debt that was stood against us has been taken away and nailed to the cross. So you no longer have to spend your days in legalistic wonder, wondering, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Because Jesus Christ has done it all. He is the righteous man who has lived this glorious life. And of course, you're probably thinking in your head, well, if I'm not beholden to the law, what's to stop me from sinning? That's a good question, one that Paul asks as well. You're on the right track if you're thinking that. But of course you're not going to sin. I mean, you are going to sin, probably. But you're not going to make a habit of it. You've been set free to live this new life. He says that in order that you may bear fruit from God. So don't fear the law. Don't spend your days ruled by the law. It has been fulfilled. This won't lead you into sin. It'll lead you into a place where you can finally bear fruit for God. See, the whole thing is it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about what I did or didn't do. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's all about what Jesus has done. So don't spend time worrying about whether or not you've kept the law today. Take your eyes off yourself. Look to Jesus. And in so doing, you will find a great power to uh, actually accomplish what you were worried about before. And look at the verse, what he says in the middle of that verse uh, in Romans chapter 7. You've died to the law. Through the body of christ so that you may belong to another i'd like to finish on that thought that this uh dying to the law so that you might belong to another the new testament very often uses the uh, analogy of marriage when it speaks of our relationship the church's relationship to christ what happens when you marry at least in our society It generally happens, although not as much anymore. You take the name, or the woman takes the name of the man, doesn't she? Star did that when she married me. She's no longer Star Lane. She's Star Wilkes. Think back to the beginning of our sermon when we talked about what's the best way to live so that at the end of your life, your name will be worth something. If people won't say your name in the same list as they'll say Adolf Hitler. They'll say it in the same list as they say Miriam Martin. What's the best way to do that? I submit to you, take the name of Jesus. Come under his name. And then when you are gone from this earth, people remember the way that you lived like him. Take his name. Because as Paul says in the, book to the, the letter to the Philippians, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not about your name. It's about his. So come to him. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Forget about all the things you do and don't do to try and make yourself better in the eyes of others. Depend on the Lord Jesus Christ, and at the end of your life, your name will be revered because people will remember you as one who followed the great Lord Jesus Christ. Name above all names. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son and the work he accomplished. And the freedom he has given us. And we pray that each day you would help us to live more for his name than in the days we have passed. It's in his name we pray and ask it. Amen.